and sisters, friends, children of God, welcome back to Jack the Bridge. Today I want to read a little bit and discuss 
uh, a little bit of who Ralph Waldo Emerson was. I came across several books about a month and a half ago that had belonged to my uh, maternal grandfather, and I decided to read some of them, and, and I, this is a reread for me. I, I have read it a couple times over over years, and um, I wanted to do a little review of research about Ralph Waldo Emerson because I found this, this to be such a brilliant writing and of course, you know, you may know he was a he was a mentor to Henry Henry David Thoreau. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a contemporary, really age wise, uh, to, to Abraham Lincoln. He was born a few years earlier. I think Lincoln was born in eighteen oh nine. Emerson was born in eighteen oh three. He lived quite a good time for someone in in that period. He he made it to seventy eight years old. Died in eighteen eighty two. He was the son of a Unitarian minister, and um, he grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. He he attended and graduated from the Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he is credited for being, well, a phenomenal essayist, philosopher, lecturer, abolitionist, and he is credited with being the poet who led the transcendentalist movement in the mid-19th century. Transcendentalism, just so we're not getting too lofty, the definition is simple in the Webster's Dictionary. A philosophy based on a search for reality through spiritual intuition. Anyway, Emerson began his career as a Unitarian minister. It only lasted three years, and he did that in Boston. But he decided to devote his life to many other pursuits, and obviously literary. Although he never held any office, he certainly had uh, pretty amazing um, convictions. And a wonderful way of, of looking at things, I believe. Um, he is credited, he, he, he believed the teachings of Jesus should inspire, in quotes, the religious sentiment. A joyous seeing that is more likely to be found in, in quotes, the pastures, or, in quotes, in a boat in the pond than in a church. And I've got to say, from my earliest my earliest beginnings, although I've had good experiences in church, informal and not formal, and I mean outdoors, I've even built a chapel at one point outside that I could tell you about, an open chapel, we should say, on the water's edge. Anyway, um, Emerson expressed that it is a calamity for a nation, a nation to suffer the loss of worship. And he wrote this, uh, this specific essay, Self-Reliance, in, in 1841. Uh, so 180 plus years ago, well, let's just say history does repeat itself. One of Emerson's underrated and underlisted in history's heroes 
mentors was a man named Thomas Clarkson. Uh, Clarkson was a Cambridge-educated clergyman who lived from 1760 to 1846. He helped found the British Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. He uh, traveled on horseback all over Great Britain, and he interviewed different sailors who had worked on slave ships and categorized and listed not only their stories, but some of the devices that they described and still had in their possession, um, really medieval stuff. Um, and uh, be, from thumb screws to manacles to shackles to branding irons, very uh, horrible part of any history to have mistreated human beings that way and to probably have lived through that and, and, and experienced the, the guilt, the, 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 the need to repent. I guess I got, I mean, phenomenal need to repent for having treated anyone that way and been allowed to continue your life above the dirt. Anyway, um, one of his main references, Emerson, was to use an incredible book written by Clarkson called The History of the Rise, Progress, and Accomplishment of the Abolition of the African Slave Trade by the British Parliament. That's quite a title. That was published in 1808. Emerson's most famous anti-slavery address was actually in 1844, and it was given... And think of this, it was given in 1844, 20-plus years before uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, before Lincoln freed the slaves here in the United States. Uh, it was given in 1844, the celebration of the abolition of slavery in the British West Indies. Despite his incredible oratory ability and persuasive ability, and maybe because of that, no church in the United States allowed Emerson to speak on the subject of abolition. In any respect, I'm going to just read the first, third, maybe half of the essay Self-Reliance, and it can be found on, online, I'm sure. When I'm reading to you, I'm always reading from a book. In this case, it's a little old book that is actually taking quite a little beating from opening and closing it. The binding is starting to get kind of hurt. Anyway, um, I know that I always complete what I'm saying with the Lord's Prayer, and I guess that's, uh, I don't know, a little bit regimented to some people. And what I can tell you about the way that I grew up, a lot of it was in formal church, a lot. I just mean on Sunday. But 
when I was introduced to the whole realm of the, the church summer camp, that allowed me an incredible uh, understanding that, that I had more of an affinity for in the course of my life. And so I used to just start a prayer when I did it in a group setting as a, as a, and maybe in my mid-teens, and I'd just say, hey, God, just like we'd say, hey, Dad. But, hey, God, please help us to get through this day. Thank you for the abundance and beauty of the world around us. Hey, God, please watch over all the brothers and sisters here and our extended families, which includes all the friends, loved ones, anyone that we care about, anyone that needs a hand, a word, your word. Dear God, please help us to resist the temptations that bring us down, that keep us from doing the next right thing. Dear God, we know this is all about your will. Our Father, please help us to carry through and live your will as we know our lives are just a blink on your watch. Thank you, God. May you all have a blessed day. May you all enjoy every bite of every sandwich. Amen. Wherever you do, wherever you're doing, wherever you are, know that Jesus Christ loves you. I guess I do too. Take care. Self-reliance. I read the other day some verses written by an eminent painter which were original and not conventional. The soul always hears an admonition in such lines. Let the subject be what it may. The sentiment they instill is of more value than any thought they may contain. To believe your own thought, to believe what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men. That is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense. For always, the inmost in due times becomes the utmost. And our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. Familiar as the voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they set at naught books and traditions and spoke not what men, but what they thought. A man should learn to detect and watch the gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts, and they come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. 
great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by, by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility than most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else, tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with with shame our own opinion from another. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better, for worse, as his portion. And though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him, but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows that this is what what he can do, which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Not for nothing, one face, one character, one fact makes much impression on him, and another none. This scripture in the memory is not without pre-established harmony. The eye was placed where one ray should fall, that it might testify of that particular ray. We but have... We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. It may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issues. So it be faithfully imparted. But God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best. But when he has said or done otherwise, shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt, his genius deserts him. No muse befriends, no invention, no hope. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so and confided confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolute absolutely trustworthy, was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men and must accept the highest mind and same transcendent destiny and not minors and invalids in a protected corner, not cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos and the dark. What petty oracles nature yields us on this text in the face and behavior of children, babes, and even brutes? That divided and rebel mind, that distrust of a sentiment because our arithmetic has computed the strength and means opposed to our purpose, 
these have not. Their mind being whole, their eye is as yet unconquered, and yet we look in the faces, their faces, we are disconcerted. Infancy conforms to nobody, all conform to it, so that one babe commonly makes four or five out of the adults who prattle and play to it. So God has armed youth and puberty with manhood, no less with its own piquancy and charm, and made it enviable and gracious, and its claims not to be put by if it will stand by itself. Do not think the youth has no force, because he cannot speak to you and me. Hark! In the next room his voice is sufficiently clear and emphatic. It seems he knows how to speak to his contemporaries. Bashful or bold, then, he will know how to make us seniors very unnecessary. The nonchalance of boys who were sure of of a dinner, and would disdain as much as a lord to do or say ought to conciliate one is the healthy attitude of human nature. A boy is in the parlor, what the pit is in the playhouse, the independent, irresponsible, looking out of his corner on such people and the facts as passed by. He tries and sentences them on their merits in the swift, summary way of boys as good, bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. He cumbers himself never about consequences, about interest. He gives an independent, genuine verdict. You must court him. He does not court you. But the man is, as it were, clapped into jail by his consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with the with a clate, Eclat. He is a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds whose affections must now enter into his account. There is no length for this, ah, that he could pass again into his neutrality. Who can thus avoid all pledges and having observed, observe again from the same unaffected, unbiased, unbribable, unaffrighted innocence must always be formidable. He would utter opinions on all passing affairs, which would be seen to be not private but necessary, would sink like darts into the ear of men and put them in fear." These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. Society everywhere is a conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint stock company in which the members agree for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It lo- it loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore it. If it be goodness, nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself 
and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which when quite young I was prompted to make to a valued advisor who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church on my saying, What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me, but that of my nature, good and bad, are but names readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution. The only wrong, what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition, as if everything were titular and ephemeral, but he. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names. To large societies and dead institutions, every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital and speak the rude truth in all ways. If malice and vanity wear the coat of philanthropy, shall that pass? If an angry bigot assumes this bountiful cause of abolition and comes to me with his last news from Barbados, why should I not say to him, go love thy infant, love thy woodchopper, be good-natured and modest, and have that grace, and never varnish your heart, uncharitable ambition, with this incredible tenderness for black folk a thousand miles off. They love afar, they're they, thy love afar is spite at home. Rough and graceless would be such greeting, but truth is handsomer that, than the affectation of love. Your goodness must have some edge to it, else it is none. The doctrine of hatred must be preached as the counteraction of the doctrine of love when that pulses and whines. I shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls me. I would write on the lintels of the doorpost, whim. I hope it is somewhat better than the whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. Expect me not to show cause why I seek or why I exclude company. Then again, do not tell me, as a good man did today, of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor? I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar, the dime, the cent I give to such men as do not belong to me and to whom I do not belong. There is a class of persons to whom by all spiritual affinity I am bought and sold. For them... I will go to prison if need be. But your miscellaneous popular charities, the education at college of fools, the building of meeting houses in the vein to end, which may now stand, aims to sots and the thousandfold relief societies. Though I confess with shame I sometimes, sometimes succumb and give the dollar, it is a wicked dollar which by and by I shall have the manhood to withhold. Virtues are, in the popular estimate, rather than the exception than the rule. 
There is the man and his virtues. Men do what is called a good action, as some piece of courage or charity, much as they would pay a fine in expiation of daily non-appearance on parade. Their works are done as an apology or extenuation of their living in the world. As invalids and the insane pay a high board, their virtues are penances. I do not wish to exp- expiate, but to live. My life is for itself and not for a spectacle. I much prefer that it should be of a lower strain, so it be the genuine and equal, and that it should be glittering and unsteady. I wish it to be sound and sweet and not to need diet and bleeding. I ask primary evidence that you are a man and refuse this appeal from the man to his actions. I know that for myself it makes no difference whether I do or forbear those actions which are reckoned excellent. I cannot consent to pay for a privilege where I have intrinsic right. Few men, few and mean as my gifts may be, I actually am. I do not need for my own assurance, for the assurance of my fellows, any secondary testimony. What I must do is all that concerns me, not what people think. This rule, equally arduous, infactual, and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is the harder because you will always find those who think they know what is your duty better than you know it. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own, but the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps his perfect sweetness and independence, the independence of solitude. The objection of conforming to usages have become dead to you is that it scatters your force. It loses your time and blurs your impression of the impression of your character. If you maintain a dead church, contribute to a dead Bible society, vote with a great party, either for the government or against it, spread your table like base housekeepers. Under all these screens, I have difficulty to detect the precise man you are. And of course, so much force is withdrawn from your proper life. But do your work. And I shall know you. Do your work, and you shall reinforce yourself. A man must consider that a blind man, what a blind man's bluff is this game of conformity. If I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. I hear a preacher announce for his text and topic the expediency of one of the institutions of his church. Do I not know beforehand? that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word? Do I not know that with all this ostentation of examining the grounds of the institution, he will do no such thing? Do I not know that he is pledged to himself not to look but at one side, the permitted side, not as a man but as a parish minister? 
he is a retained attorney. And these heirs of the bench are the emptiest affectation. Well, most men have bound their eyes with one or the other handkerchief and attached themselves to one of these communities of opinion. This conformity makes them not false in a few particulars, authors of a few lies, but false in all particulars. Their every truth is not quite true. Their two is not the real two, therefore not the real four, so that every word they say chagrins us, and we know not where to begin to set them right. Meantime, nature is not slow to equip us in the prison uniform of the party to which we adhere. We come to wear one cut of face and figure and acquire to degrees the gentlest asinine expression. There is a mortifying experience in particular which does not fail to wreak itself also in the general history. I mean the foolish face of praise, the forced smile which we put on in company when we do not feel at ease, in an answer to conversation which does not interest us, the muscles, not spontaneously moved, but moved by a low usurping willfulness, grow tight about the outline of the face with the most disagreeable sensation. For nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure, and therefore a man must know how to estimate a sour face. The bystanders look askance on him in the public street or in the friend's parlor. If this adversation had its origin in the contempt and resistance like his own, he might well go home with a sad countenance. But the sour faces of the multitude, like their sweet faces, have no deep cause, but are put, up, put on and off as the wind blows and a newspaper directs. Yet is the discontent of the multitude more formidable than that of the Senate and the college. It is easy enough for a firm man who knows the world to brook the rage of the cultivated classes. Their rage is decorous and prudent, and they are timid as being very vulnerable themselves. But when in their feminine rage and indignation of the people is added, when the ignorant and the poor are aroused, when the unintelligent brute force that lies at the bottom of society is made to growl and mow. It needs the habit of magnanimity and religion to treat it godlike as a trifle of no concernment. The other terror that scares us from self-trust is our consistency, a reverend of our past act or word because the eyes of others have no d other data for computing our orbit than our past acts, and we are loath to disappoint them. But why should you keep your head over your shoulder? Why should you drag about this corpse of your memory? Lest you can contradict somewhat you have stated in this or that public space, 
Suppose you should contradict yourself. What then? It seems to be a rule of wisdom never to rely on your memory alone. Scarcely even the acts of pure memory, but to bring the past for judgment into a thousand eyes present and live ever in a new day. In your metaphysics, you have denied personality to the deity. Yet, when the devout motions of the soul came, yield to them, become, yield to them heart and life. Though they should clothe God with shape and color, leave your theory as Joseph his coat in the hand of the harlot and flee. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little maids adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. The consistency of a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think, how in hard words and tomorrow speak, what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. It is so bad then to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. I suppose no man can violate this nature. All the sallies of his will are rounded in by the law of his being, as the inequalities of the Andes and Himalay are insignificant in the curve of this sphere. Nor does it matter how you gauge and try him. A character is like an acrostic or Alexandrian stanza. Read it forward, backward, or across. It still spells the same thing. In this pleasing, contrite wood life which God allows me, let me record day by day my honest thought without prospect or retrospect. And I cannot doubt it will be found symmetrical. Though I mean it not and see it not, my book should smell of pines and resound with the hum of insects. The swallow over my window should interweave with the thread or straw he carries in his bill into my web also. We pass for what we are. Character teaches us, teaches above our wills. Men imagine that they communicate their virtue or vice only by overt actions and do not see that virtue or vice emits a breath every moment.